0: Farming program with Arrowquip steel stockholders Withambrook Industrial Estate, Grantham. For all your steel needs, call their friendly experts.
1: Back in April, a Lincolnshire field was drilled using ten different manufacturers' equipment. How did they compare, and how did the drilled field compare to traditional
2: methods? The results are in. We've got a 2.3 ton per hectare spread between first and, and last.
1: Wilfred Emmanuel Jones' parents came to the UK from Jamaica in the 1960s. They worked like so many of the Windrush generation in industry. But Wilfred chose a very different path. He became the Black Farmer.
3: I'm a great believer that what you've got to try and do in life is to have a dream to aim for, and you should dream big. You have to be bold. Because if you don't, you stand no chance of it
4: happening.
1: Here, part one of Wilfred's inspirational story, plus Sean Sparling's back on his summer soapbox, and we'll get the weekly livestock and grain market reports.
4: The week in agriculture.
1: This is the farming program with Steve Orchard. Hello. Bit of welcome rain this week. Not enough in some parts, flooding in others typical. We'll see what's in store for the week to come at the end of the programme. Let's start this week with some congratulations to those shortlisted for the 2022 Farmer of the Year Awards, including Lincolnshire's Jonathan Featherston from Featherston Machinery, Edward Gent, C.S. Gent and Sons and Tim Russon of P. Russon and Sons. Good luck for the final awards. And it was A-level results day on Thursday. Hopefully you're happy with yours, in which case congratulations. But if the grades weren't quite what you were hoping for, don't give up. The likes of lincolnshire's Rice home college and bishop burton still have spaces for agricultural courses available through clearing call them on 01964 553010 or email clearing at risehome.ac.uk back in april a lincolnshire field was drilled using 10 different manufacturers equipment how did they compare and as they say on the telly the results are in Andrew Ward from Lednam, whose field it was, first of all, take us back to April. What did you do to set the test up?
2: So just so everybody understands how we did it, all the plots were exactly the same size. And you remember, Steve, we got rain middle of the day. Yeah. So the morning uh, drilling was better than the afternoon drilling. It's quite interesting that, that the best plot of all um, was our Simba free flow. We got the best yield from that. Now, I know there'll be listeners saying it's cooked, it's fixed. <laughs> It was all done, you know, properly, and uh, it was all monitored regularly throughout the season. Okay, so take yours out of it, was there much variety with the other machines? When you start to look at the the actual yield, yeah, we go from 6.5 tonnes per hectare as the top yield, and then the the lowest yielding uh, plot, or the lowest yielding drill, was 4.2 tonnes per hectare. So we've got a 2.3 tonne per hectare spread between first and, and last. Okay. Are these
1: direct comparisons? Can we say, well, that that piece of equipment is better than that piece of equipment?
2: I think it's difficult to say that in this situation because it was so wet when we were doing it. To be honest, if we hadn't uh, if we hadn't to arranged the day on that day and got the three hundred farmers, you know that were coming to it uh, arrived I don't think we'd have done it if it'd been in our own situation we'd have said no it's too sticky underneath um, and so we'll we need to wait two or three days until it dries a bit and so to ask all the direct drills to actually perform on that day um, was was, uh, was a risk they all said they would do it and all credit to the manufacturers for doing it but I would be very um, reluctant to base any firm decisions or purchasing decisions on what we saw uh, on on that day.
1: Okay so Can we compare these results with, if you like, conventional methods
2: of sowing seed? Yes, we really can, and that is a really good question because... This field as a whole, um, it averaged um, 5.4 tonnes per hectare. Now, that's all the outsides, the headlands. And bearing in mind, the headlands were damaged quite a lot with all the machinery running about on on the day. We then have another one of our fields that you've been in, Steve, where we do our direct drilling. We've had a direct drilling uh, sort of long-term trial. That came out at 6.2 tonnes per hectare. And this is all barley we're talking about. Next door was a field in our conventional system. So, worked in the autumn last autumn with our Simba solo before the winter left over the winter sprayed off same nitrogen applied drilled with our free flow drill in the spring um, and it's come out at 7.9 tons per hectare so you can see now why i have a a problem in saying that direct drilling on on heavy land is is going to be the way forward because I, i just still cannot see it on this soil type
1: i know you can't necessarily give an answer to this but do you think it would have made a difference significantly had the soil been different You know, if we'd have done this somewhere else on lighter soil.
2: Yes, I I think it would, without a shadow of a doubt. Lighter soil always is more forgiving when you have the conditions that we had here. But I think it does just show still that a conventional system where you're working it in the autumn and then, you know, working it in the spring. And I think the thing is, what that does is it means we can get on the ground sooner. The trouble with direct drilling on heavy ground is when you're not moving it, the air can't get into it to help to dry it.
1: Are you going to publish these results anywhere for people to have a look at?
2: We will definitely publish them. Besides just the yield, we've also had uh, establishment percentage figures. We've also got tissue tests, so we knew throughout the growing season, twice at different points of the growing season, what nutrients were in in which plant, and there was a difference within the plots as to which drill had captured more nitrogen than others. And the other last thing was root mass. We did a root mass assessment, so we've got four or five different things. The massive amount of data we've got from this experiment, and yet it it will all be published.
1: Okay, thanks for that, Andrew. Thanks for the update. Andrew Ward from Lednham, we look forward to reading the results in due course.
2: Thanks very much, Dave. Brilliant.
1: We will, of course, let you know when the detailed results are available to look at. And another update from the fields now, potato fields this time, with Colin Jackson from PJP Potatoes. Good morning, Colin. Firstly, how's the market
3: looking?
5: Yeah, morning, Steve. Um, we've seen for the last probably six months a, a bit of a lack of demand, if I'm being honest, right the way through um, all sectors of the of the potato market. Uh, we left sort of last season with a carryover of old crop, which obviously isn't a, a great way to be starting the season. Um, and things were... We're looking a little bit doom and gloom at the start of the season because of that. The chip shop market, for instance, most people sort of seem to think is running at about 80% of where it would traditionally be. And that's similar for, uh, for several sectors in the, uh, in the market.
1: What would you put that down to? Any ideas? I
5: think we saw an increase in the market over lockdown. Um, people, you know, cooking for themselves again. You know, they've got more time to do this kind of thing. So fresh Produce in general, I think, went up quite a bit, and that sort of masked a general slight downturn year on year with people back, unfortunately, back into uh, the old habits of convenience foods and what have you. So, um, I think we're seeing the reaction because of that.
1: What about the crop in Mm. the ground? I was talking about sugar beet the other day with Andrew Ward and he's saying that looking ahead to when they're going to start lifting it's going to be rather difficult given the weather we've had recently. The sugar beet isn't growing and isn't bulking up as much as they would like it to be and of course the grounds rock hard. Is that the same for potatoes? Potatoes?
5: The biggest majority of potatoes are grown with irrigation these days because it's obviously a higher value crop than sugar beet. So most people will irrigate. A lot of people have run out of irrigation water. and The irrigation has kept the crop growing, even though not to the extent it would have done traditionally had it had enough um, you know, natural rainfall. But it has certainly meant that uh, it's been able to take advantage of the recent rainfalls that we've had. Um, it hasn't sort of died off. I mean, certain crops have died off and will do particularly badly but for as many of poor crops there are actually some some pretty decent crops as well where they have had enough irrigation and will take advantage of this bit of wet that we've just had at the end of the week and as you say harvesting as well people will irrigate to harvest because it's much more critical for potatoes than it's for sugar beet that you don't cause damage when you're harvesting them
1: but I dare say we could do with a lot more
5: Yes, very much, but then you've got to be careful what you wish for because it can soon go the other way. If we see deluges of rain, then harvesting will become very, very difficult because it's literally just too muddy, so it can can change very quickly.
1: As you say, be careful what you wish for, and we're never satisfied anyway, are we? (laughs) No, we're not. (laughs) All right, uh, Colin, many thanks for the update. Take care. Thank you. Yep, cheers. Bye-bye. Last week, our highly respected, he didn't tell me to say that, independent crop consultant Sean Sparling was on his summer soapbox, looking back at the challenges of season 21-22 in agriculture, challenges which are not going away, let's face it. Indeed, they continue to grow as we move into season 22-23. Sean, last week you commented on the high prices we're seeing in the grain markets for this year's harvest, which will be a great result for some, but not, I guess, Sean, for the livestock sector who have to buy in their feed at these higher prices.
6: We've seen the pig and the poultry industry drop into their knees. We've seen tens of thousands of perfectly healthy pigs being culled and then incinerated because there isn't the capacity to get them through the system and into the food chain. This is food being thrown away because of an inept and damaged system, where we no longer have sufficient people working in the abattoirs to cope with the volume of these animals. All of that since Brexit. But at the same time, we have huge levels of job vacancies in the UK, but nobody living in the UK wants to do those jobs. Absolutely extraordinary. So we find ourselves today, in a period of less than 12 months, with an industry where it's now costing farmers minimum three times what it cost them just a year ago to produce those same crops. Thank goodness it's a dry harvest because the costs of gas and electricity to dry any crops would be absolutely prohibitive. We can no longer rely upon nitrogen as a plant food being there on farm no matter when we order it. Glyphosate, you know, we can no longer rely upon that turning up no matter when we order it, and we don't know how much it's gonna cost when it does turn up. Today, We see empty shelves in the supermarkets because, as we've been saying for years, the supermarkets have kept food prices artificially low and have squeezed their suppliers so hard to achieve that illusion of cheap food. So when production costs mean that growers cannot afford to sell for what Mr Tesco wants to pay it's hitting the consumers far harder than they were ever expecting. You know, these are chickens coming home to roost for the supermarkets who for far too long, in my opinion, have been misleading consumers on the real cost of their food. It's hard to witness, but it's been inevitable that that's what was going to happen, and now it has. So never has farming been so important for this country's future. We have some of the most productive land in the world, but only a finite amount. There's eighteen 2 million hectares of agricultural land in the UK, but only 27% of that, 4,600,000 hectares or so, of arable production which is capable of producing our arable food crop. And that 4.6 million hectares should be absolutely untouchable. It should be for food production and nothing should be allowed to take that arable land out of production. So when I see non-farming landlords who are seeing the pound signs in their eyes and who are now renting out some of the best arable food producing land in the UK to solar farms for the next 40 years, to maize for AD you know to produce energy that's four and a half million hectares of arable production land is capable of feeding all of us without us relying on anybody else bringing food in for our staples. All 67 million of us could live off that. We have farmers in the UK, some of the best in the world, capable maximizing their output and at the same time protecting the environment, our wildlife and our biodiversity. And it is downright disgraceful in my opinion that this prime arable land can be prostituted for clearly cynical financial gain there's another 14 million hectares of non-arable agricultural land in the UK land incapable of growing food crops put your solar farms on those put your wind farms on that But please don't bite the hand that literally feeds you because you're taking away our ability to feed ourselves. We could be self-sufficient, but if prime arable land's being taken out of production because an absentee landlord who lives in London or Birmingham thinks £1,000 an acre for 40 years sounds pretty good and nothing for them to do, what can we do about it? It's their land. They own it. But surely somebody must work out, government-wise, that we cannot eat solar panels can we so all in all all in all this industry has changed beyond all recognition in the last 12 months i said a year ago that this would be our last normal harvest and i truly still believe that so let's see what this next 12 months brings to us, shall we? You better buckle up because it's going to be a bumpy ride. And I'll tell you now, the louder you scream, the faster that ride's going to go.
1: Sean's back from his summer break soon with some timely agronomy advice each week as the new crop season gets underway. Thanks, Sean. Hope you're enjoying your holiday.
0: The Farming Programme, with our equipped steel stockholders with Industrial Estate Grantham, supplying the region for over 40 years.
1: The 60s brought many people from the Caribbean to the UK. Most of the so-called Windrush generation ended up working in factories, warehouses and the like. One man who was just four when he arrived from Jamaica grew up with a father working at British Leyland in Birmingham but ended up following a very different path to working fulfilment. Wilfred Emmanuel Jones became, at the time, and we believe still, the only black farmer in the UK. Wilfred, welcome. Tell us a bit, first of all, about what life was like in those early days and how you got into farming.
3: So um, I lived in Small Heath in, in Birmingham and um, I lived in those classic two, two downstairs houses and there's 11 of us in my family and we were very, very poor. I can remember my mother trying to feed all 11 of us with one chicken. And it's not like those chickens that you would get from Tesco's. It's those old old boiler chickens that took weeks to tenderize. And because we're so poor, my father had um, an allotment and it was my responsibility as the oldest boy to look after this allotment. And this became my oasis away from the misery of living in such a urban environment. And I can remember at the age of 11, I made myself a promise that one day I would own my own farm and then everything that I subsequently did with my life was to try and get into position to buy this farm. It took me some 35 years to do it, but I'm a great believer that what you've got to try and do in life is to have a dream to aim for and you should dream big. You have to be bold because if you don't, you stand no chance of it happening.
1: Dreams certainly can come true, but you usually have to do a fair bit of work to get there, don't you? Now, you are the black farmer. You were certainly the only black farmer, I think, in the UK. Are you still?
3: Well, I think that I am still the only black farmer in the UK. And the reason why people are surprised at that is um, because it just seems to be really odd that why isn't there more black people within um, our industry? The reason is that... um, most farmers have their land handed down to them through the generations. The only way you could actually go and get land if you don't have it um, handed down to you is to go and buy it. And land is very, very expensive. And so therefore, if you're an immigrant, you're automatically at a disadvantage. Now, there is land owned by big landowners, people like the National Trust owns a lot of land or the Church of England. But what those big institutions also do is that they lease their land out to the traditional families. So even though there may be an opportunity to lease land, it's not actually doing anything to try and support new people into farming. This is one of the things I'm really passionate about, is that you're not going to get diversity in farming unless some of these big institutions go out of their way to help and support people from diverse backgrounds.
1: Now, you've said one of the things we need to do is to sex up farming. Now that's interesting. What do you
3: mean by that, Wilfred? Well, what I mean by that is um, if you take the catering industry, back in the day, catering was seen as a pretty rubbish profession to go into. And it was a culture of the celebrity chefs that then made uh, chefing an attractive profession to go into. Lots of young people were were seeing stars like Jamie Oliver, Gordon Ramsay, James Martin, kids like them from the side of the street, like them, who went on to become celebrities, become famous. Therefore, if you're a young kid brought up in any environment, you don't necessarily have the education to go to university. You saw that there was a route for you to go in and and prosper. We need to do exactly the same thing about farming because the image of farming it's that it's old men, you know, and that you know it's black cap. It's as though it's an England of some hundred years ago. And it's not going to attract new people into this industry until we change the image of farming.
1: Now, given that image and given the problems of actually being able to simply buy a farm because of cost of land and land being available, how can this be changed?
3: The way you change it is to get these institutions feeling as though they've got um, some sense of responsibility. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing stopping the Church of England or the National Trust or English Heritage or some of these big land overs to say something simply to their um, land agents. You know what? We want to put aside 5%, 10% of our land and your job as land agents is to go out and find new entrants that we could rent and lease this land to. And it will do a number of things. A lot of food that we import into this country, that's consumed by um, people from the ethnic minorities, can be grown in this country. Now, the reason why they're not grown in this country is because the traditional farmers not interested. They don't have the knowledge of how to grow those things. Now, if land was available to people from these communities, a it would be good for our a- a- economy, and it will help to bring about innovation. Farming is very, very traditional, very old fashioned. It takes a long time to move with the times. And in order for it to start to be innovative, you need to have new blood. It's, people, it's outsiders who bring about change. And unless we actually recognize we need to be attracting outsiders, we're going to be in an industry that is just going to eventually die.
1: More from Wilfred Emmanuel Jones, the Black Farmer, on next week's farming programme as we turn to look at the future of farming. If you want to read his fascinating story, head to theblackfarmer.com. To the markets now, though, starting with livestock and from Louth, auctioneer Oliver Chapman. Morning, Oliver.
4: Good morning, Steve. This week's weekly roundup starting with the prime cattle, which the steers sell to a top of 280 pence per kilo and gross 1,523 pounds and 28 pence for F. Wallace and Sons of Biscathorpe. The heifers sell to a top of 270 pence per kilo and gross 1,320 pounds for D. L. Lyle and Co. of O and B. Moving on to the cool cows we just one an offer top at 144 pence per kilo and gross £1,176 for MD Reeves across from Brocklesby. Onto the store cattle, a super number forward saw an average for the steers of 1,004 pounds per head, with the heifers averaging 1,021 pounds. Top came for ADV in the steers at 1,275 pounds, while the heifers were topped by WH Jackson Sons at 1,260 pounds. It must be mentioned that the 22 suckled calves from Stuart Renshaw of his annual consignment for August saw a high of 1,090 pounds, and all in averaged a thousand. And £4 which would be 50 pence difference on the year. Moving on to the sheep and starting with the prime lambs which are an SQQ of 250.42 pence per kilo with an all-in average of 249.8 pence per kilo. Top came in the pence per kilo and the pounds per head for J.A. and R. and C.J. Jackson at 131 pounds per head or 273 pence per kilo. Onto the cool ewes, similar number forward, however, averages slightly dear on the week with an all in average of £103.20. Top came for J&S Brooks of Strubby at £140. Finally, just a handful of store lambs on offer, which left an all in average of £69.29, which were topped by EC Herring of Lissington at £103 must be said that these have been drawn out of the fat as uh, one or two are just lacking enough uh, finish on them to be placed in the prime lambs. That's this week's report, so a huge thank you to everyone that's been and supported this week, both buyers and vendors. Tomorrow we're back on with our regular sales of prime and cool cattle and prime and cool sheep. This is Oliver Chapman for Masons and Louth Market, and thank you.
1: Thanks, Oliver. And the grey market update now with Openfield's Alice Killam. Morning, Alice.
0: Morning, everyone. We have had a pretty negative week with global futures charts in the red. Yesterday's charts were the worst, with London wheat losing circa £20 in just four days. The French motif is back to pre-conflict levels, but on the other hand, are experiencing the worst drought on record and sold heavily to Egypt 10 weeks ago. Some may argue this doesn't all add up. It all started with some optimistic data from the August USDA report. Many traders were expecting production numbers to fall significantly, and it just didn't happen. Bean production in the US even went up. The forecast for poor weather in the US has also changed, with the hottest of the weather now moving further north. Rain has been forecast, which could help later drilled soybean bean crops further. Ukrainian exports have been talked up, with wheat as well as maize now coming out of a different port alongside Odessa. A few boats haven't solved the supply issue, but the headlines are without doubt bearish. All this considered, US fund traders seeing this week as a week to sell, not to buy. Another interesting factor is the talk of Ukrainian new crop predictions looking down, with President Zelensky yesterday saying that until Russian troops have gone, no negotiations can start. Interesting too to see the news of slow Russian export numbers for July. They need to be shipping now before the winter freeze and already the estimated 42 million tonne looks very unlikely. Whilst wheat futures have fallen, rapeseed has had a kicking. The increase in US soybean production from last Friday has not helped. And of course, if the US does have a good crop, post the Nancy Pelosi visit to Taiwan. Will US exports be affected into China? Demand destruction in the oil market with high inflation numbers is all over the news. But on paper, rapeseed is still needed. The UK will need to import circa 400,000 tonne this season. The hot weather that the US were going to have has just moved north into Canada and we are clearly off to a very poor start in Europe in terms of next year's plantings. Prices for this week? Feed wheat September 232 to 242, October 235 to 245, November 236 to 246, with milling wheat premiums currently around the £40 mark. Barley August 214 to 224, September 217 to 227, October 217 to 227, and January 23 219 to 229. For malting premiums, please speak to your open field FBM. All seed rape, August 467 to 477, September 471 to 481, October 474 to 484, November 477
1: to 487. Thanks, Alice. The Farming Programme, five-day forecast. A bit more rain around this week, particularly tomorrow, but generally it's a cloudy and mostly dry week with light and variable winds. Temperatures up to the mid-20s Celsius today, but dropping to the upper teens in the rain on Monday. And then mostly dry, sunny and warmer for the second half of the week with temperature highs back in the mid-20s. Well that's your lot for this week more from the inspirational story of the black farmer on next week's program I'm Steve Orchard until then have a great
0: week The Farming Program with Araquip Steel Stockholders with Ambrook Industrial Estate Grantham BSI ISO 9001 accredited